0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Great to have your company. This is Between the Lines. Well, the year 2022 has seen the election of a new federal government. Anthony Albanese is Labor's first Prime Minister since 2013. And although he's been in power for only six to seven months... His government has already legislated major policy from the National Anti-Corruption Commission to the Industrial Relations legislation and, of course, the climate legislation. Meanwhile, the coalition remains in the political doldrums. It's splintered and divided on several major issues. But one thing unites both major parties, and that is the tough stance against China's aggression that has culminated in a thaw in Sino-Australian relations. So to review the year 2022 from an Australian political perspective, let's turn to our panel. Jennifer Hewitt is national affairs columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Hi there, Jenny. Hi, Tom. And Judith Sloan is a columnist with the Australian and the Spectator Australia magazine. Judith, welcome back to the program again. Pleasure, Tom. Now let's start with May's federal election. Jenny, Anthony Albanese, he won with only 32% of the primary vote how do you rate Labor's first six to seven months in power?
2: Well, I think Labor would certainly say they've been terrific. And I think most people would agree that they've had a pretty good six to seven months in power. You might disagree with some of their policies, but they've certainly got things through the Senate because they've got a much friendier Senate, of course, than the coalition ever had to do with. You know, although they had modest commitments going into the election they said they deliver on them kind of fairly quickly and they, they have been able to do that and then some. And I think also the tone of the Albanese government has been fairly popular with, with the public. Um, people, really, many people were voting against Scott Morrison more than for um, Anthony Albanese. Um, but I think it's, it's helped in some ways by his successes or it, it, the perception of success in, in foreign policy, and even in domestic policy. I think people just appreciated a kind of calmer tone in politics um, and a steadier tone. They were ready for it. And I think in that sense, Albanese has done better than many people uh, expected in terms of how he you know, talks about the prime ministership and what he's doing.
1: Okay, you mentioned the tone, and of course, the government has a two-seat majority. It was a small target election victory in May. Judith, despite that changed tone in Canberra, they've legislated some major policy, and of course, um, one of the big issues facing any government these days is addressing inflation, cost of living pressures, the big COVID debt. <laughs> How's uh, Labor going on that track? Judith?
3: I agree with Jenny in broad terms, but I think there are some quite important exceptions to this. I think the October budget was a dud. I'm not quite sure why they did it. And instead of that being a document setting out the means of fiscal consolidation, i.e. repairing the budget, it didn't do that, and I think that was a really big missed opportunity. I think the other point I make. In fact, I've written a piece uh, in this week's Specky, which uh, is headed, what happened to the small target? My argument there is that it really was never a small target. It was just that they dropped all those revenue raising measures, all those unpopular tax uh, tweaks that uh, Shorten had taken to the uh, 2019 election. But actually, there was a very big agenda there. And we have seen that Um, in the 61 bills that they've passed in that short space of time. Now, my argument is that uh, in those bills, they were hastily drafted, probably not properly reviewed by and large. And so there are, I think, potential problems down the track, particularly in industrial relations.
1: Okay, a profoundly disappointing result for the coalition. Now, this is the prominent journalist, Paul Kelly, In The Australian this week, uh, Jenny, he says that the Morrison government's defeat constitutes quote, an existential crisis for the coalition and the Liberal Party that will not be solved merely by the normal cycle of political change. Is he right?
2: Well, yes, I think it is a big problem for the Liberal Party at the moment. i think in in many ways the electorate has the the centre of the electorate has shifted a bit to uh, a bit to the left and and the Liberal Party has not. Followed it yet uh, in terms of many of the policies that that are of uh, appealing to more people, particularly younger people and women. Look, this has always been an issue, obviously for the Liberals Party, or long been an issue for the Liberal Party. But I just think that has become more extreme. And although the you know the biggest factor in the election it was in many ways a very personal dislike of scott morrison as prime minister i think there's many policies as well as just the general appeal of the liberal party that does mean they they are in deep trouble you can see that it not just in um in the federal territory but in every kind of every state, really, with the exception of New South Wales and, um, and Tasmania, and New South Wales is, is clinging on to power with an election in March, which will be close. So, uh, yes, I do I do think there's a really big problem for the Liberals. And, and just on Judith's point about the Labor Party um, in terms of their six months in power, I, I think when I said get the tone right, that has made the Liberals' problems worse. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not all sorts of kind of unintended consequences and time bombs that are sitting there. But we're talking about the perception as much as anything of this year as opposed to the reality of what's going to be coming uh, in next next year and beyond.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the changed tone and, 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 and of course the Liberals are in the political doldrums, especially when you look at those blue ribbon professional heartland seats that turned teal at the last election. But circumstances change a lot in politics and when the events change – political fortunes can be reversed. I mean, we only have to go back to 2008, 2009. The overwhelming media conventional wisdom was that Kevin Rudd and the Labor Party were in the political stratosphere and who would have thought that Tony Abbott came from nowhere to nearly knock off a first-term government and then he eventually won a massive landslide election within only five, six years of being in opposition. So the circumstances can change Judith Sloan.
3: Well, I totally agree with that interpretation. In fact, I remember in 2013, there was column upon column of uh, the existential crisis affecting the Labor Party after that defeat. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm old and grumpy and, uh, (laughs) you know, I've seen it all before. I mean, having said that, it seems to me, here's the real dilemma for the Liberal Party. The sort of leaders are very attached to those inner city seats, right? They regard them as somehow akin to their personal property. But if you follow the Piketty analysis, which on on this uh, point I'm very convinced, it's been a flipping. So Thomas Piketty, prominent French economist. Yeah, there's been a, I'm not talking about his work on capital, but his uh, work on political affiliations, where what has happened is that the most educated inner city types now vote progressive. And those who live in uh, outer suburbs and rural and regional areas who are less educated vote conservative. Now, the trouble for the Liberal Party is that they don't really want to live in those areas and they don't want to devote the resources to winning them mm-hmm. on sort of socially conservative values. So that, I think, is it's a kind of uh, in, inner turmoil for the Liberal Party, not so much the National Party, I think's think quite, um, did very well in the Victorian election, for example, uh, knocked off some independents. But they're going to have to resolve that, and I think that's very difficult because, you know, if you think that, you know, Kuyong should be your jewel in the crown, mm. it's very hard to let that idea go.
1: Yes, and climate change has been a big issue for a lot of these voters uh, in now teal electorates. That's quite evident. But at the same time, uh, there are tensions between Canberra and the states over imposing a price cap on coal and Queensland and Victoria. And, and Jenny, you've written a lot about this, but we rarely hear this in much of the media. They remain, these states remain heavily dependent on fossil fuels, even as they focus attention on renewable energy plans. What are the unintended consequences of Canberra's net zero policies, Jenny?
2: Oh, look, there's so many, really, and there's, there's certainly plenty of um, uh, hypocrisies and contradictions to go around, um, and I think a lot of it has been obscured by the fact that there's just a general enthusiasm for um, renewables and everybody says, oh, that's the direction of the future. And that is, you know, whether you're in, um, you know, a business leader uh, or whether you're, you know, just sitting there as a community activist. So you kind of everybody agrees on that general direction. But of course, the energy market is so complicated and so particularly in australia but you know everywhere and what we've seen i think is the fact that good intentions are great there's no doubting the overall direction in terms of you know getting more renewables into the grid but particularly over the next you know this decade there's this terrible gap between what renewables can deliver or or batteries or any, other, any of the other you know, great hopes for the future and what we need for power. And that's why mm. you've seen this incredible contradiction between everybody promoting their mm. their green credentials while at the same time desperately trying to find more coal and gas and, and, and getting all the money from that and having this you know, huge debate about how we're going to manage high prices because of what's happened to coal and gas.
1: You mentioned uh, good intentions and there's no question that Chris Bowen is held bent on the acceleration of decarbonising the Australian economy, even though, of course, Canberra unashamedly supports gas and coal exports, which, of course, help boost the budget revenue. Judith Sloan, what do you make of Labor's plans on the environment and energy just generally?
3: I mean, they're just kind of illogical and inconsistent, to tell you the truth. You know, if you really want to try and understand what's going on, the first point is The left of the Labor Party, even though Bowen, for example, is not of the left, is absolutely critical in driving these things. So they're not just anti-coal, they're anti-gas. And that's absolutely critical to understanding what's going on at the moment. They do not want to increase the supply of gas. And unless we increase the supply of gas, there's no way that electricity prices are going to moderate over the medium term. The second point is that they and a related point, is they acknowledge that one of the problems is that it's easier for dispatchable power to exit out of the system. So we've had a bit of Liddell go. It will go completely next year, maybe in 25, I think 25. But we haven't replaced that with equivalent dispatchable power, let alone increased dispatchable power, to deal with uh, population growth and the electrification electrification associated with, say, electric vehicles and the like. But this is the lull before the storm, I think, that uh, unless we can kind of see our way through some uh, means of improving what often is called firming power, and gas is probably the best to complement renewables, we really are in for choppy times.
1: Okay. This is Tom Switzer and my guests are Judith Sloan from The Australian and Jenny Hewitt from The Australian Financial Review. Now, the fun time of the segment, Australian winners of 2022. First to you, Jenny, who's your winner of the year?
2: Well, I, frankly, I don't think you can go past um, Anthony Albanese for one of the reasons that uh, we, we talked about. Um, he's had um, a, a good start uh, to his prime ministership uh, uh, and people are generally kind of receptive to that. I think that will... Well, as as Judith and I talked about, you know, there's going to be problems to come as a result. Um, but for, for now, I think um, he's riding high, as, as reflected in the opinion polls, as he um, heads into 2022.
1: Judith, is elbow still, is he your political winner as well?
3: Well, I mean, being a Victorian or a part Victorian, you have to put Dan Andrews there too somewhere because, it's, I mean, really extraordinary when you think about it. You know, he would uh, have won another term in the face of what were, I think, extraordinary restrictions and and damage for a lot of Victorians.
1: Losers of twenty twenty two, Jenny Hewitt.
3: Well, again,
2: I, I <laughs> it's pretty predictable, <laughs> but I don't I don't think um, there's a bigger loser in uh, the, for the year than um, Scott Morrison. Mm. You know, voted out in a big way by the Australian public, but also in a kind of a, and there's a very Personal repudiation of him, that is kind of is quite quite remarkable, really, and he feels obviously very very unfairly done by, and including you know then you saw that movement against him in Parliament. I mean, in, in many ways that was a kind of symbolic power play thing by the Labor Party to wedge wedge Peter Dutton and co. But I just think to go from being respected as holding the highest office in the land to, to then having his legacy completely repudiated, not completely, but largely repudiated, oh, yeah. um, is, I think, you know, I think that's pretty... Is he,
1: is he, by the way, like Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull, in the sense that neither neither former leader of the Liberal Party has any real political constituency in the Liberal Party? I know of no Liberal... A federal or state who really defends Malcolm Turnbull or Scott Morrison. Is that a fair assessment, Jenny Hewitt?
2: Yeah, I think that is right. I think that is right for very obviously very different reasons. For the conservatives, Morrison wasn't conservative enough. You know, for the moderates, you know, he was far too conservative. Um, and then, of course, you know, he, he led them, that they put a lot of faith in him to uh, lead them to another miracle win, which, of course, he, he didn't. And now they can't get away from him fast enough, frankly.
1: Your political loser of the year, Judas Loan
3: has to be Scott Morrison.
1: Yeah.
3: I mean, there are some other contenders overseas. You know, you've got your Liz Truss, Boris, Trump, but certainly extraordinary in Australia. He really has taken the pasting and, and it's hard to see his way back to any kind of normal reputation a former Prime Minister should have.
1: Financial Review did an editorial this week, Judith, saying that uh, he deserved the censure, but the pylon has been unnecessary. Fair point?
3: Absolutely. I mean, you might have disagreed with what he did. I think the National Cabinet was a really terrible idea and he tied his hands behind his back by then really being driven by what the the premiers were deciding, uh, although funding it as well. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, definitely the biggest loser. I don't think in weight terms that was elbow, was it?
1: No, indeed. Uh, Political predictions for next year, Jenny Hewitt.
3: Now, I
2: don't want to sound uh, the Christmas Grinch, um, but I think this this year's been tough. Next year's going to be a lot tougher economically, and I don't think people kind of quite Realise it uh, yet. And um, I think that's going to make uh, the politics uh, much trickier uh, in a sense than they've been in the the last six months. And you're going to have those, you know, the the screams about interest rates are, you know, obviously only going to get louder. And you're also going to have an enormous number of mortgage holders coming off those fixed interest rate loans in the first few months of the year. And if the economy turns badly, um, that's going to be very, very, difficult. And then at the same time, you're going to have, um, in contrast to the budget that we saw this year, which was kind of steady as you go, you know, from Labor government really wasn't anything that much. They're going to have to come up with some Pretty major changes in uh, the budget in May, and that is going to have all sorts yeah, of. But to be uh, fair to the Labor Party, though,
1: aren't they helped by the high commodity prices and our exports of uh, iron ore and gas and coal?
2: Oh yes, no, no, they've been they've been very much helped by that. Absolutely, very much helped by that. But I mean, that does if you've got a, a kind of an economy that's. Weakening kind of dramatically, and at the same time, you've still got, um, you know, incredible, you know, massive spending costs going up. That's going to be an issue. But the, the the real issue is going to be what what's happening in the economy. We don't know yet exactly, but it's as as Phil Lowe keeps saying, it's a very narrow path between avoiding recession and uh, trying to get inflation under control.
1: Political prediction for 2023, Judith Sloan.
3: You know, I think the economy is probably as good as it gets. And I think, Tom, you're absolutely right to highlight what remain historically high terms of trade. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, the Chinese, I don't think they know anything other than to build a lot of infrastructure to keep their economy going. So the iron ore price may also hang in there. But, um, you know, I think you you can see some uh, waves developing and uh, something crashing on the rocks. So... Uh, That, I think, will be an issue. And I think, you know, cost of living pressures, I think when people uh, undertake surveys of people's concerns, you'll find cost of living is way up the top. And that creates a real challenge for the government because there are not that many things they can do in a sustainable sense and potentially making it worse in the medium term. So I think, yeah, we'll be watching that space.
1: That was Judith Sloan from the Australian newspaper and the Spectator Australia magazine and Jennifer Hewitt from the Australian Financial Review. Up next, the unintended consequences of legalising marijuana in the US. While the marijuana smoked back in the 60s and 70s, it was light beer compared with what's available today. And despite the super strength pot now sold and consumed, there's been a steady and growing call for cannabis to be not only decriminalised, but legalised. These days, small amounts and personal use, in most places, incurs a fine rather than serving time in jail. Legalization and commercialization that's yet to happen here in Australia, but it's a different story in the US. In many states today, you can simply walk into a shop and buy it over the counter. So how has the full legalization of cannabis worked out? Well to tell us about some of the unintended consequences, let's turn to Steve Malanga. He's a senior editor at the City Journal and a fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York. Now, just a first simple question how many states in the u.s have legalized marijuana for recreational use
4: well we have 19 where they're actually selling it and a 20th recently voted to um to legalize it also but they haven't yet you know initiated the full legalization regime so that's kind of where we are right now we also have many more states uh, more than 30 states where it is legal for medical purposes and to tell you the truth in many of these places, it's just another form of recreational legalization because many of the people who are prescribed it and use it are, are, are prescribed it not necessarily for medical conditions other than general anxiety. And so basically, uh, you know, it's just almost a recreational ju- drug in many of those places too. Okay, so, so
1: marijuana, if you just look at California, for example, I think they had uh, two propositions put to voters – uh, in the last decade or so, one in 2010 and then one in 2016. Uh, what were the arguments and benefits espoused by the supporters of legalisation in those propositions?
4: So there's been this, um, uh, uh, I guess you could call this evolution of the argument. The first thing to understand about the argument is that it really began with medical marijuana in the 1990s, and that has kind of normalised the use of marijuana. Even though, and this is really the brilliance of the marketing around this, even though um, very, very few doctors actually will prescribe marijuana for medicinal purposes. And and so the the whole, the medical steamroller, if you will, the the medical marijuana legalization normalized the idea of pot. Once that occurred, then people began saying, well, you know, if it's something that can be used in medicine, we really need to decriminalize it because people are being put in jail for using it, which is really not actually true in the United States. Most people who go to jail for marijuana, they go to jail for dealing it, and usually for dealing large amounts, and for things like money laundering and everything that goes along with dealing. So so then what happened is that the argument became, it's not harmful Let's not put people in jail. Let's decriminalize it. If we decriminalize it, the government will get the revenues from decriminalize it because we're going to tax it and, and we'll eliminate the black market. So look at all the good things we're going to do. It's, it's, it's fine for you. We're going to raise revenues from it. Uh, we're going to eliminate the black market. Uh, it's going to be great. And
1: then what does that mean with criminal gangs and the cartels and the violence? Well, because one if you of the eliminate things... the black market, surely you'd get rid of all the crime. That's the logic. Isn't yeah, it?
4: well, that was the that was the appeal. That's proven to be completely untrue, and I've written about this several times. In fact, the black market in the United States for marijuana has not only not gone away, but in states that have legalized it, it's intensified. And this sounds wow. counterintuitive. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, it's so bad that recently the state of California which used to have a kind of seasonal commission, which went out and and searched for pot plants and destroyed them when pot was illegal in the state, has recently increased its uh, anti-black market efforts uh, and made it a year-round commission. The uh, uh, other states like Oregon and Washington are dedicating tens of millions of dollars now to wipe out the black market, which was supposed to disappear with legalization, but didn't disappear with legalization. Yeah. And in fact, the market and the crime that goes along with it is still there. And what has happened is this. And if you think about this, but certainly from a free market or conservative point of view, all of a sudden it comes home. When government right legalizes something and taxes it and regulates it, they add costs to the marketplace. And what you had with the, with marijuana is you had this black market infrastructure that was out there. It was already existing. Now the government comes along and says, well, we're going to make it legal. And, and therefore, you know, you just come under our umbrella and you're going to have to adhere to all of our regulations. Well, well, a lot of the black marketers, they basically said, this is a great environment for us because we can basically hide in plain sight. We can grow this thing. In, like in places like Colorado, they basi- they admit basically that the, the law enforcement, they can't kind of tell the difference and and they have to go out and devote enormous resources to trying to figure out what's illegal and what's not. So the black yeah. marketers are basically just undercutting the marketplace. As a result of that in California, I'll give you an example, an ironic example. The legal marketers of pot who put all this money into these initiatives in order to get it legalized so that they could sell pot are now demanding from the state that they eliminate the black market. <laughs> Even though the initiatives that these Locky. folks right, that these folks put together, the campaigns, they said to people, vote for this and the black market will go away. Now they're saying to government, it hasn't gone away. You're, they're undercovering our market. You have to do something about it.
1: Yeah, so law enforcement once again puts resources into policing and and regulating marijuana. So again, just to clarify, because this is such an intriguing argument, the war on drugs like marijuana, far from winding down, it's actually escalating despite it no longer being illegal. That's your
4: line. Right, right, exactly. And and again, it's not only because of the, the kind of conditions that I've said, but on top of that, remember, when you legalize it, and particularly within the context of medical marijuana first, you normalize its use. And so, for instance, recent surveys have shown that marijuana use among young adults is way up. Like, 35 to 40 percent of, of uh, young adults. And with COVID, it's gone even higher. So wow. what you're doing is, right, you've expanded the marketplace for this. Right. And you've you, so, so the the black marketers see, ironically, they were supposed to go away, but they see a market getting bigger with legalization. Of course, they're not going to go away if they can if they can help it.
1: Now what about environmental regulations here because the illegal growers do that I mean do they follow environmental regulations that say others in the right. agriculture sector must abide by for example
4: water no, one of the reasons the black market still exists is it's not just the government is saying well if you want to sell pot you know we're going to regulate it and we are going to uh, tax you on the pot itself But as a legitimate business, there's a whole bunch of rules you have to follow. And so let's say in California, where they they have very strict rules about usage, for instance, by farms, I'm talking about legitimate farms, farms that grow grapes for wine, right? They have very strict regulations on water usage and marijuana plants requires a lot of water. And so a lot of these black marketers, what they're just doing is they're stealing water. You know, Water is a precious resource in farming communities, and they're just stealing it because they wouldn't get permission to grow in that abundance uh, that they are growing now because of the strain on water in some communities. So they've gone to places, and they're just – again, because they're hiding in plain sight, that's another incentive for them not to become legal is they not only have to pay taxes on the pot they're selling – but they have to essentially adhere to other uh, you know, regulations like environmental regulations. And they're putting a big strain in California on the water supply in some communities as a result okay, of Steve, this. Okay, Steve, now
1: I get that, but is California alone in its experience of these unintended consequences that you talk about? No, and when, I, I mean, absolutely not. So the problems are visible yeah. in other
4: states as well? Absolutely. Oregon and Washington and Colorado, for oh. instance, are good examples. Now, the interesting thing is Oregon and Washington are both farming states too. Initially, people said, well, the black market's only not going away in these farming states. But if we legalize it everywhere, it'll disappear. But then what happened in Colorado is it became suburbanized. In Denver, which is obviously a big city, and in the surrounding uh, areas, what happened is all these foreign gangs came in. They started buying up cheap, uh, cheaply, buying up homes. And what they would then then do is the homes would stay empty, but they started growing pot in the basement of these homes. And they started then selling pot out of these homes. And the the police and and federal prosecutors have busted, you know, Argentinian gangs, Bulgarian gangs, who all came over and using cash, they bought homes in these areas and just started growing pot in the basement. That's how lucrative a business it is. I mean, we're talking about the states
1: here. What can Washington do on any kind of legislation on this uh, marijuana issue? I mean, I understand that Chuck Schumer, uh, he's the New York uh, Senate majority leader. He's obviously a Democrat. He's from New York. What's been the reception for his legislation on this question of marijuana?
4: Well, you see, here's the thing. Marijuana is still illegal nationally. And what that even means is it creates a conflict in many of the states. Because, for instance, if you want to be a federal contractor, that means a business that does business with the federal government. If you're in a state where pot is legal, you still are required to test your workers to make, you know, to make sure that they're not using pot. They're supposed to be drug free. That's that's supposed to be. So there's this conflict between the states and the federal government. Now, the advocates of, of legalization want to fix that by having national legislation that legalizes pot all over the country there's a tremendous pushback against that particularly from senators and uh representatives in more conservative states and there's never been a majority willing to vote for that and so recently uh, schumer put put out legislation it's another version of legislation that would nationally legalize marijuana. But what he put into the legislation to try to get some conservative states to vote for it is he put in federal funding to help eliminate the black market. So on the one hand, we want to, we want to legalize it nationally. (laughs) Right. right, right, Exactly. We're going to pay, but now, (laughs) i doubt that that's going to succeed uh, again because there's a there's a real conflict growing you know there's a there's an increasing amount of um, of medical evidence because this pot that that this generation of pot is so powerful as as people like to say it's not your grandmother's pot or if you grew up in the 70s you know it's not your your 70s pot your hippies pot you know it's creating a, a real psychological problems with people who use it regularly and it's it becomes very quickly addictive because it's so much it's 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 orders of magnitude more powerful than the pot that people were smoking in the 70s steve
1: i'm, tr- I'm still trying to get to the central paradox though i mean i mentioned this national legislation we've been talking about chuck schumer's national bill to legalize marijuana but all the available evidence indicates that the legalization of marijuana at the state level has led to these dreadful unintended consequences. So, why would there be an appetite in Washington to actually make it legal nationally?
4: The overriding argument in many places is that it's a social justice initiative, that in particular, marijuana arrests a carb disproportionately in minority communities. People's lives are being ruined because of this, and the thing we have to do, therefore, is just eliminate it. Now, the, the counter argument to that is well, if that's re- if that's really what you're worried about, let's just decriminalize it so that people don't go to jail for it, but not let's not fully legalize it so we create this whole you know big business essentially. But it's that social justice argument that is really in, in the average person's mind right now. And it's only when you kind of force them to look at some of the evidence that's coming out, which it, it, much of it is being published in medical journals, which on the one hand is credible, but on the other hand, it's not the, something the average person reads. It's, it's a 20-year narrative that people are you know, invested in right now. And it's going to take a lot of evidence to overcome that. And so, you know, it is happening gradually. More and more researchers, more and more doctors are, are writing about the experience they're having with patients. Emergency room doctors are telling us um, some of these, you know, schizophrenic outbreaks that occur from people just from smoking pot. But it's a, you know, again, it's a 20-year campaign. And I think people are, th- are they're thinking in one way, the average person, it's going to take a lot to change that perception.
1: Well, Steve, one of the great pleasures of going to work at Radio National here in Australia is that one gets to meet a lot of interesting people and learn a lot on a weekly basis. You're one of them. Steve, I've learned a lot today. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines.
4: Oh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun.
1: That's Stephen Malanga, Senior Editor at The City Journal and a fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York. Up next... Is the future of feminism conservative? Well, my next guest hails from a left-wing Guardian reading household. She studied women's studies at university. She's never voted Tory. And yet she claims that the future of feminism is conservative. Louise Perry is author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, a New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, is published by Polity Press. Louise, welcome to Between the Lines. Hello, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, an American neoconservative is defined as a left liberal who's been mugged by reality. Now, you may not be a neocon, but <laughs> your view of feminism, am I, is it fair to say you've been mugged by reality?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the phrase I used in my uh, in my introduction. Yeah, I mean, so the, the path that took me to writing this book was, as you say, guardian reading, liberal London background. And I went to the most left-wing university in the country, <laughs> the School of Oriental African Studies in London. And I studied anthropology, I did women's studies, was taught the sort of... Ext- extremely mainstream conventional view of uh, the sexual revolution among much else, which is that it was an unambiguously good thing. And then I went to work in a rape crisis centre after I left university, and uh, it was a bit of a confrontation with reality, <laughs> um, which I guess set me on the path to to writing a book with a, such a provocative title.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you're a volunteer at a rape crisis volunteer, and that really opened up your eyes. Tell us more about that.
0: I was a volunteer and then I also um, worked there as well. I suppose the main thing for me was just there's this very well worn phrase in feminism that um originated from the second wave of the 1970s that rape is not about sex it's about power so the idea is that rape is a sort of political act committed by men against women as uh, uh, you know and and it's got nothing to do with sexual desire it's just to do with politics really. And I probably repeated that phrase <laughs> heaps of times. But I don't think it's true anymore. And one of the reasons I don't think it's true is because when you're working with, with victims or you're in the criminal justice system in any way, you can't help sometimes but notice the, the profile of victims and the profile of perpetrators. And there are certain ways in which that it's all about power, not sex, just doesn't work. When you When you look at something, for instance, like, the amazing youth of victims, like the the modal rape victim is only fifteen, and perpetrators aren't that much older. They tend to be twenties. There's a very very clear peak in male sexual offending and male violent offending in general around teens and twenties, which really doesn't make sense if you're thinking of this just in terms of politics, but if you're thinking of it in terms of uh, peak male sex drive and peak female. Attractiveness, then suddenly it all kind of all the puzzle pieces fit together, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, I, I so it was around that time that I, I guess I started thinking in a little bit more uh, of a heterodox way about some of these issues, mm.
1: yeah. And I think one of the big issues, of course, and this is obviously global, is about male rapists and they become they identify as female and then they're in prison should they be allowed to be in prison wards with women? And that's a big issue for you too, isn't
0: it? Very, very live issue in the UK and I'm Mm. I'm sure in Australia as well. It's actually the issue relating to, you know, the conflict between some trans activists and some feminists. I think this is, for me, the most important question because obviously everyone uses public bathrooms and so we often end up talking about bathrooms it's kind of the go-to conversation when we're talking about female spaces because it's obviously a space that everyone uses whereas most of us thank goodness are never going to see the inside of a prison or a domestic violence shelter i think those spaces are the most important ones to protect because those are the ones where you've got women actually locked in right you can't you can't escape and also you've got some of the most vulnerable women in the whole of our society potentially being trapped in proximity to um, sex offenders who are just cynically taking advantage of these new policies to get access to vulnerable women. I think it's a complete catastrophe, livid (laughs) with feminists who refuse to talk about it or who even try and shut down any kind of investigation or, or criticism of these policies.
1: Yeah, well, the transgender issue, it's especially fraught. I mean, J.K. Rowling also someone who hails from the left side of politics and so too is the Australian feminist Jermaine Greer, yet both mm-hmm. high-profile female authors, they've been slammed for their stance on trans issues. Are, are you in the same camp?
0: Uh, yes. <laughs> Not that I've been slammed too much. I mean, that the funny thing about this whole issue is that, as you say, J.K. Rowling, she comes from the left, she's a big Labor Party donor, Beloved, beloved children's author, up until all of this happened, and suddenly she's had she's had so much difficulty. But I think it's because of her association with the left that she's had such a hard time. My experience of writing about these issues is, uh, you know, I've I've written for newspapers and magazines across the across the political spectrum, probably almost every national in, in the country at this point. And my experience is that if you write about these issues for a left leaning outlet you will have a hard time in terms of the response you get online and in letters and so on. Whereas if you write about these issues for a conservative outlet, no one minds <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can get away with it.
1: Now the philosophy professor Kathleen stock, and I know she's written a forward to your book, uh, she she's um, a friend. she was cancelled yeah well she was canceled over comments on trans rights and she laments this is Kathleen stock she says that no freedom of speech means she will ever, she'll never work in a British university again. Is she right?
0: Mm. Sadly, I think, yeah, because academia is probably the hardest area of work to be in um, if you hold gender-critical views, um, meaning that you're uh, even slightly critical of the most extreme end of trans activism. I mean, things that Kathleen has said and written are extremely mild. But part of the reason that she had such a hard time is because not only was she in famously left, left-leaning left line of work, but also she was at Sussex, which non-Brits might not know, is uh, after SOAS, my alma mater, probably the most left-wing university in the country. So, yeah, she had a, she had a dreadful time, obviously very very widely publicised. The,
1: the, but isn't the, the whole point of a liberal arts that education that that scholars should encourage students to look at all the different schools of thought and look at the pros and the cons and and assess uh, assess the arguments on their merits rather than shutting down debate?
0: Mm, one would think so, yeah. But that's not how it's it's viewed by people who take this sort of activist stance. They're not committed to... Openly airing these conversations, they think that they think that it they just shouldn't be happening at all, um, and that's also true in some areas of the media. Not all, fortunately. So the media is not nearly as bad as academia in this regard, um, because as as I was saying, you you can have these conversations in centrist or or right leaning outlets. But
1: talking about the media, Louise, this is the Observer's book review. And now the Observer is the essentially the Sunday version of the Guardian in Britain, so it's left leaning. Uh, Rachel Cook, this is what she says in The Observer about your book, uh, urgent and daring and brave. It may turn out to be one of the most important feminist books of its time. Now, that's Rachel Cook in The Observer. My guess is Louise Perry. The book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Let's talk about one of the controversial aspects Uh, of your book, Louise, you say the sexual revolution is failing women and you say feminism is leaving the left. In other words, the future of feminism is conservative. Tell us more.
0: (laughs) There are a couple of things going on and a lot of it's got to do with the internet. So the nature of feminist campaigning work historically is obviously that it takes up. A lot of time you have to show up on the street be writing letters to your to your um representatives in parliament and, and and banging on their door and doing all this stuff in person which is really time consuming which is one of the reasons that there's always been uh, a real underrepresentation of mothers in feminism and indeed an underrepresentation of mothers in all areas of public life um senior politicians for instance are, are either male or very disproportionately likely to be women who've not had children i not had children yet or never had children and and women just kind of drop out of drop out of the public eye as soon as they have kids almost whereas i think that because of the smartphone because of platforms like twitter for all of their their evils you know there are there are there are good size to these platforms too it's suddenly become possible for women who are home with their kids, you know, literally breastfeeding with, oh, I did this when, when I had my, my, my baby, um, literally, you know, tweeting with one hand and breastfeeding with the other in a way that you could never possibly do in a previous era. Suddenly you've got these women who are, who are participating in political debate in a really meaningful way and doing grassroots organizing and all of this stuff. And you've also got an issue that we've already, we've already touched on the rise of trans activism, these really extreme onslaught against women's rights and women's spaces, in, in Britain in particular, has just sort of lit a flame under a lot of mums who, you know, the nature of making a person and, and pushing them out of your vagina is that you normally know full well what a woman is and it's quite hard to persuade mothers that biological sex isn't real and isn't relevant to your to your life and so you've given women a cause and you've given women a means to participate in politics and it's evidently the case that the left has really let women down on this issue in a really sort of ostentatious way. It has been the left who have been pushing to have convicted sex offenders transferred to, to women's prisons and to have all this talk about birthing persons and cervix havers and all this erasure of women in medical language and so forth, which is just, it feels like such a betrayal. And one of the things, that a really interesting feature of, of, of both men and women having children is it does tend to make people more conservative, So I think it therefore isn't a surprise that you're suddenly seeing these influx, an influx of women into into feminist organising who have not necessarily come from the left, as is traditional for most feminists. They've not come from the trade union movement or from other kind of activist movements. They're they're kind of normal women, and actually normal people tend to be quite conservative.
1: (laughs) Okay. Now, your critics, so I think of uh, Julie Bindle. She's a British feminist uh, you engaged in a debate with her on the Spectator television site. Now, they would say, the critics would say, Louise, that these women's rights critics of trans people, and, and you're not alone, obviously, as you just made clear, but they're just single-issue campaigners. They're not. You're not real feminists. This is the argument because, with rare exceptions, you don't campaign against male violence, for instance. How would you respond to the likes of Julie Bindle?
0: Julie and I have known each other for years and years because of both campaigning on male violence in different ways and she's done some really, really important work. She she has a point about some about some of these women, but then I say, look, give them time. Because I think you've got women who previously were basically not really engaged in potentially not engaged in politics at all, and definitely not engaged in, in feminist politics. And they've they've only recently arrived at this issue and and, and obviously the the trans stuff has, has, has what's brought has been what's brought them there. That doesn't mean though that they're going to remain single issue. I think it's quite plausible that that, you know, if you look at polling, for instance, on how parents feel, for instance, about their children being exposed to porn, you know, this is this is one of these issues that uh, it's 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 hard to find a polling question where you can find greater agreement among voters than something like, are you worried about children being exposed to porn at a young age? And would you, you know, do you want the government to to act on this. And you know, these are the sort of feminist issues that you could easily see cross-party organising among these women who, who were brought to the issue by trans but could easily be motivated to, to participate in other political conversations.
1: The conventional feminists would say that it's conservatives who have routinely denied women from attaining more legal rights and kept them out of the workplace uh, in the past. And yet, you're saying here that the next wave of feminism is conservative. So, a lot of the old guard would be profoundly, they'd find what you're saying here quite distasteful, Louise.
0: (laughs) Yes, I'm told. But then, (laughs) um, despite or maybe because of um, my political background, I don't describe myself as a progressive. I describe myself, in fact, as a progressive apostate. Um, not because I necessarily disagree with progressives on everything, but because I think that the whole idea of progress, this you know historical shape where everything's kind of getting better all the time, is really silly. I, I just don't think that's a, a useful way of understanding history. I think that what we have seen in the last um, century or so, where women have participated more and more in public life has been, yes, partly a consequence of feminist campaigning, but also has a lot to do with changing material circumstances. The fact now that we have um, washing machines and central heating and microwaves and disposable nappies and all these things which make housework much, much less time consuming than it used to be, meaning that it's much easier now to be a working mum without having servants And also combined with the fact that we've seen the nature of work change. So there's much less emphasis now on male physical strength in the economy. Those kind of manual jobs are increasingly a thing of the past. And we've had a shift towards a service-based and knowledge-based economy in which women, despite being smaller and weaker than men, can much more easily participate. You know, doing an email job, it doesn't matter if you're... of a man or woman is sitting behind the keyboard, right? Which is, of course, why women are actually slightly out-earning men right up until they have kids, because the, the playing field is actually pretty even in that kind of domain. So these changes that we've seen, you know, some of it has been to women's benefit, but not all. One of the things that's really hard for mothers in today's economy is that we've gone from having two incomes being a, a perk of, of freedom for some select women who were who were able to, to to gain paid employment outside the home and interesting professional jobs, to now actually having two incomes being a necessity. You can't possibly get a mortgage without two incomes. You can't possibly maintain any kind of middle class life lifestyle without two incomes. Or even you know people at the, at the very bottom of society you can't can't get by at all without working every hour God gives you. You know so. The problem is, I think, to, to conceive this entirely as, as progress and to have this quite, I think, simplistic narrative of feminist history, which is all about sort of the great woman theory of feminist history, where you have feminist campaigners being very brave and clever and, like, achieving all these unambiguously good, good things, I think it's more complicated than that. I think that what we've seen has basically been an aligning of male and female roles in that it has become much, much easier now for women to basically live like men, And to use technology in various ways to sort of overcome biological difference or hide it out of sight. But that doesn't mean that it goes away. And something like, you know, motherhood has always been a problem for the feminist movement because mothers aren't really individuals. Like when you have a little baby, or even if you have a slightly older child, who, who is completely dependent on you, and to whom you have an intense physical and emotional bond? To say that the two of you, mum and baby, are just two, you know, individuals interacting in the labour market or whatever, is a nonsense. You're talking about you're talking about a unit, and a unit, moreover, that is completely dependent on other adults for support at those crucial, vulnerable moments. If you if you prioritise freedom, in other words, if that's if that's the whole goal. Of your feminist movement, it's all about liberal individualism, it's all about um, basically making women as much like men as you possibly can. How do you fit motherhood into that model? You, you can't. You end up basically either ignoring it or, or rejecting it. So all of which is to say, long-windedly, that um, I think that there are ways in which the feminist movement has got off track and actually to re-inject some more conservative political thinking would actually probably serve women's interests better than the counterpart.
1: That's Louise Perry, author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. And just before we go, if you'd like to listen back to some of my other interviews on this subject, including a recent conversation with Mary Eberstadt on the family, its role and how our understanding of it has changed, you'll find it on the ABC Listen app. Search for Between the Lines and scroll back to the November 4 episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Till next time, bye for now.